You're listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. Join us as we have a fun conversation with certified experts and physicians about health topics for you and your family. It's Your Best Life, our one purpose. Hey, podcasters, this is Sherry. And this is Adam. And Adam, who are you? Well, I've been here the whole time, actually. <laughs> Adam was our, what is your technical term, Adam? So I'm actually, I, I would call myself the producer of this podcast, but technically I work for marketing and communications. And we finally twisted his arm to be on the podcast today. So welcome, Adam. Thank you. I, up until this point, it's been, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> but, but he is the mastermind of this whole thing. So anyway, we are so excited to have our podcasters on listening to us today because we have the return of Dr. Ravi Vamiri. Uh, He is an infectious disease expert, medical director of infection prevention and healthcare epidemiology at Mercy One Des Moines. He joined us back in March, I believe, and talked about the COVID back then. And so we've brought him back today, uh, blessed to have him on today to talk about where we are now from where we were then. Yeah, Dr. Vimuri, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, why don't we just get uh, right into this, Doctor? Um, what can you, what do you know now that you didn't know then, back uh, when we t- first talked in March? I believe that when we first uh, started talking about this, we had at that time not documented uh, any community transmission in the state of Iowa. So in March, it was still very much a travel-related illness. And little did we know how quickly it would spread in the community. I think uh, it caught a lot of us uh, by surprise. And some of us weren't all that surprised because we knew that we did not have the testing capacity. And uh, we learned from the Chinese and South Korean experience that this is a highly transmissible agent And unless you test, you may miss a lot of people who may have low symptoms or actually no symptoms. So, yeah, the the last time we talked, uh, it was kind of a travel-related illness. And, of course, now, uh, with what's gone on the past few months, we realize that uh, there's extensive community transmission It's a very deadly virus. We've had so many deaths, both nationally and here in Iowa. And uh, uh, we've learned quite a bit, actually. And and we've learned to gain uh, a new level of respect for, for just how sneaky this virus is. You had mentioned something about, you know, when this first started, we thought that we knew what the symptoms would be. And so there's many people out there that are asymptomatic. And there are several, you know, since we talked in March, there's been more symptoms that the epidemiologists are sharing and doctors are sharing that, you know, it's just not a lung or pneumonia disease. There's a lot of other symptoms. Can you talk about all of the symptoms that someone with uh, the COVID-19 would maybe have? Absolutely. So you're absolutely right. When we first started talking about this, uh, we primarily saw very symptomatic people. So the symptoms were fever, shortness of breath, and cough. And for a long time, those were the three main symptoms we were focusing on. But as the pandemic progressed, 
we soon came to realize that there are many asymptomatic people and people with symptoms other than the three that I just mentioned. So currently, uh, in the official CDC uh, list of symptoms, uh, these include, uh, still include fever, shortness of breath, cough, but now also sore throat, headache, body aches or muscle aches, uh, a feeling of feverishness, not even having a fever, uh, something called rigors, where you feel chilled or your body kind of shakes and quivers, uh, so a feeling of feverishness, and uh, diarrhea, loss of sense of smell, many people seem to have that, and then loss of taste. So those are the uh, additional symptoms. I think uh, all in total amounting to 10 uh, potential symptoms. And, and then of course, uh, varying degrees of those symptoms. And then of course, uh, having no symptoms at all. Those are the kind of the people that we worry about most because they might have it and uh, they might be able to spread it, but they don't even know it, uh, that they have it. So in the midst of a pandemic, uh, it's safer to assume that everybody has it until the level of community transmission gets to a level where epidemiologists tell us that it's safe to go about and assume that everyone doesn't have it. So what does that mean? Assuming that everyone has it means that we need to protect ourselves when we are out and about. In other words, when we are outside of our family bubble, which is basically whenever we step out of the house, we need to be putting on a mask. Now, having said that, if you're out in a park all by yourself and there's no one within the, you know, a great distance of you, you probably can be without a mask. But anytime you think that people are gonna get within six feet of you, be it indoors or outdoors, it's highly recommended that you wear a mask. Because the bottom line is, the virus can only persist in our population if we don't allow it to gain access to our mucous membranes. You know, what do we mean by mucous membranes? It's the lining of the mouth and lips, the lining of the nose, and of course, our eyes. So those are the three uh, entry points for the virus into our body. So uh, if we're out and about and we wear a face covering and we practice a lot of good hand hygiene and not touch our face or our eyes, uh, without uh, doing hand hygiene, then we basically stop the virus in our tracks. You know, every individual out there has, uh, has it within their power to help curb this pandemic. And uh, sometimes it's hard to do, and it's kind of a pain, uh, but it's a simple thing to do, and it's a vital thing to do, and it's absolutely essential that we all do it. I like to call it minding our three W's. Wear a mask, that's the first W. Watch your distance or social distancing, that's the second W. And the third W is wash your hands often. If we were, well, some epidemiologists estimate that if 95% of us were to do those three simple things in the next five to eight weeks, we could get this pandemic under control. You know, they're powerful tools. And, and people need to realize that uh, the key here is to not allow the, 
virus to gain access to new mucous membranes. That's a way of saying uh, a new person. And the best way to do that is to mind our three W's. If everybody got on board, we're, we're talking right now in, in the beginning of August, but if everybody in the country all got on board, you could think that we could have a better handle on this by October. Absolutely, absolutely. But, uh, of course, you know, human behavior is uh, very difficult to manage. But I was very encouraged by a recent poll which showed that apparently 85% of Americans, regardless of their political leanings, were in favor of mask wearing in public. So that's really encouraging. Now if we can get 95% of us to diligently mind our three W's when we're out of our family bubble, I think we have a really good shot of getting this thing under control. And, 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 and those are the, really the only tools we have until we get a safe and effective vaccine, because this virus isn't going anywhere. It's, uh, it's not something that's just going to go away magically. You know, I think with, um, you know, children going back to school, colleges reopening, I think a big question on many parents' mind and students' mind maybe are, you know, when I go back to a college and I'm sitting in a classroom or I go back to school, I mean, what are your feelings on making sure that classrooms have our, our requirements for face masks, masks versus not? There's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, social uh, talking on Facebook about some parents not being happy that their children should wear f- or should be required for face masks. Others say it's an absolute. And listening to you, it sounds like your feelings would be it should be an absolute. Absolutely. This should not be a topic uh, that's debatable. Again, let's try to think about uh, just exactly how the virus works. The virus, in order to persist in the human population, needs to get from one set of mucous membranes, meaning somebody's mouth, nose, or uh, eyes, or lungs, to another set of mucous membranes. And the best and simplest way to do that is to wear a mask. It's not gonna be 100% effective, but it's gonna be well over 90% effective. The less chance that you give the virus to access your mucous membranes, or if you have the disease either symptomatically or asymptomatically to access somebody else's mucous membranes from your mucous membranes, is to be wearing a mask. It's a relatively simple thing to do, and I don't think it's asking too much for the greater good to get this thing under control to do that. You know, everybody wants to be on the other side of the pandemic. I, I, I can't think of a single person who doesn't want to be on the other side of this. But the quickest way to get there is to do the things that we talked about, uh, doing the three W's. Wear a mask, watch your distance, wash your hands a lot. Uh, I, I know I sound like a parrot, but that's precisely what we need to do. I think that you're absolutely right. We all have this COVID burnout. And when summer hit, you know, we all thought, oh, warmer weather means that we're not going to be more as susceptible as, you know, colder weather and getting this. But we're not seeing that in Iowa. We're actually seeing the numbers go back up. So I think, you know, heed those words that masks are so important, whether it be hot temperature, cold temperature. It's it's the way to making sure that, you know, we're not getting the COVID-19, or we have a better chance of not getting it through those three W's. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I, th I think the issue of schools is a huge concern and rightly so. On the one hand, you have to balance the well-being of children and the parents uh, in terms of uh, you miss out a lot uh, if you don't go to school. But on the other hand, you also have to uh, think safety. So just this morning, I was listening to a podcast from Dr. Mike Osterholm, who actually is an Iowan, uh, settled in Minnesota. Um, he is one of the world's experts on infectious diseases, uh, and he's w very well known, and he's done a lot of research. He has about 45 years of experience, and uh, he uh, stressed uh, uh, safety in, in terms of uh, going back to school. The first priority should be safety, both for the students and the staff. The second priority is uh, the importance of in-person learning, especially for the younger students, those under 10 who benefit the most from in-person social interaction. Thirdly, uh, mind the infectiousness of this uh, virus and plan accordingly, that is minding the three W's while you're in class. And then planning, planning to change at the spur of the moment as conditions change in your community uh, were the important things. And, and related to that, uh, disease prevalence in the community. So I think that, you know, there's no one size fits all for all types of schools and all types of communities, but you need to work closely with your local public health department, know what the uh, rate of infection is in your community and, and uh, heed their advice. And, you know, you need to have, you need to be very flexible in terms of schooling. You need to have some online learning, some in-person you know, some people need to do a hybrid type of learning where they do some classes online and some in person. But uh, no matter what model you choose, uh, if you're going to be interacting with uh, students and teachers and other staff at the school, we have to absolutely pay attention to the three W's and we have to work closely with our local uh, health institutions and public health departments so that if we do have a young person uh, or a staff member uh, become symptomatic during the school day, we need to have a very clear plan of exactly how we're going to assess that person, how we're going to manage the rest of the people in that class, uh, not only the people, but the physical classroom itself, what kind of cleaning we're going to do, how long we're going to keep it closed or not closed, depending upon the circumstances. And, and, and how we're going to manage all those young people that were uh, and staff members who were exposed. So there's a lot of planning that needs to go in place to manage all those issues. And, and I don't envy uh, school administrators and school decision makers and parents going into the fall, but I think, um, you know, we, we have to be flexible. Now, uh, if it gets to a point where community transmission is so high and, and, and the first goal of school opening, which is safety, is going to be compromised, then I think we kind of have to bite the bullet and, and do only uh, online learning uh, and, and not do any in-person learning. So, uh, you know, each uh, district will have to make its own assessment in conjunction with their local public health partners in, in making that decision. So there's been some discussion when we think about school 
the different impacts that the virus might have on different age groups and who can and cannot be a, a carrier. So what, what do we know for sure? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It seems from the latest data that children under the age of 10, uh, even though they might get the virus, they may not spread it as readily as children over the age of 10. So that is something to keep in mind. But having said that, there's no absolutes. Uh, We can't say that every child under 10 can't spread it. It just seems statistically, there seems to be less spread by those under the age of 10. Those over the age of 10 appear to uh, be able to spread it just like adults. For a long while, they thought children didn't get it and children weren't capable of spreading it. But the problem was all those studies were done in areas where schools were closed and and children were just being kept at home. So they weren't being exposed to the virus. If children are exposed to the virus, they will get it and they are capable of transmitting it. But uh, uh, to answer your question again, I think uh, those under the age of 10, uh, even though they might get it, they're not as likely to spread it. But having said that, we still need to mind the three W's. We still need to monitor their symptoms. If they're symptomatic, we need to pull them out of the public sphere and keep them isolated at home. That also makes me think of another question I wanted to ask a few minutes ago, and we talked about how the virus impacts different people in different ways. And I'm talking about um, all age groups here. Are, are there any signs for, for different factors that people might have as to why it impacts one individual one way and another individual more severely? You know, this is the million dollar question. I can relate to you stories of people in their 90s who we saw back in April and May who were from congregate living facilities. So you would think a 90-plus-year-old person uh, living in some sort of congregate living facility who ended up in the hospital requiring oxygen, uh, requiring an ICU stay, might somehow have a terrible outcome and a 40-year-old otherwise healthy person uh, coming into the hospital maybe would have a better chance. And, and, and uh, in those two instances, I can say that we saw completely the opposite result. The 90-plus-year-old person went back home uh, to their own facility, uh, not requiring any supplemental oxygen, made a full recovery by all accounts. On the other hand, The 40-year-old ended up requiring mechanical ventilation, ultimately requiring uh, ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is a uh, dramatic last-ditch effort to save somebody, uh, and and ended up passing away. So uh, the, the answer to those questions are complex and not that easily understood, but my sense is that Uh, inoculum size matters. Uh, In a lot of infections, uh, the amount of agent that you're exposed to does somehow seem to correlate with the severity of infection. And this is especially true of viruses. So for example, the uh, 40-year-old otherwise robust and healthy person 
working in a meatpacking plant for 10 hours a day, standing within six feet of perhaps 700 other people, uh, you know, in some sort of assembly line fashion without any PPE, uh, for a prolonged period gets exposed to a lot of virus circulating indoors in that setting. So for example, uh, back during our, uh, our peak, we had a couple of meatpacking plants where like 750 employees tested positive. So people in that setting were exposed to a high amount of virus or what we call inoculum, the inoculum size. And, and so they got very sick. On the other hand, the 90 plus year old living in some sort of assisted living facility got exposed, but were perhaps in their own apartment and did not get uh, a huge inoculum. So even though they were elderly and frail, they somehow were able to survive. Of course, there are certain specifics to each one's individual immune system, which also play a role. But, you know, that's the million dollar question. It's such a sneaky virus and it has such a variable impact on people and sometimes in unexpected ways. Uh, so I, I think as we get more into this pandemic, more and more papers will come out trying to sort out why some people, you know, ended up dying and others ended up surviving. But uh, the, the, uh, some of the things I mentioned are some of the thoughts uh, pertaining to this. I think that's really interesting. You know, I've never heard it put that way about the amount of people around you that may have that COVID virus. When you use the example of the meatpacking company, you know, when one person might have it and then spread it within closed doors and then several people have it, that in conjunction with being close by each other makes you more sick probably than one person have it, having it in a place where nobody has it. And I've never heard it put that way. So that makes complete sense to me. Um, since I, I, had, I had an opportunity to work in our respiratory clinic during um, this COVID crisis, and I, I, I witnessed that firsthand. We've seen a lot of younger um, I'm going to say younger because they were 40 <laughs> and I'm 40. So uh, younger people come in being very ill with the COVID and they worked in the meat pla plant and we, we questioned, you know, they were healthy otherwise, but that makes complete sense to me why they seem more sick than the 80 year old coming in for a COVID test. And I think that will make a lot of sense to other people listening because we don't think of it in that way. Yeah, absolutely. So, so there's two factors at play here. Uh, one is, uh, as we know, uh, people of color uh, were more impacted. And, and it's not because of their race. It is because their race uh, made them more probable or more likely to work in settings where the virus load was higher. For example, the meatpacking plant, uh, where the majority of workers, and I've never been in one, but I'm told the vast majority of workers tend to be recent immigrants of color or people of Hispanic heritage. Uh, and, and so you saw a lot of that there. Whereas if you look in our nursing facilities, the, the vast majority of people uh, tend to be Caucasian because, uh, you know, the Caucasians have been around in this state for a lot longer 
than other populations, so there's more of them in nursing facilities. And, and uh, even though they're older and they're in a nursing facility, a lot of them uh, perhaps have their own private rooms, they're in assisted living. So uh, even though they're at more risk there, they're not nearly at as high a risk as a meatpacking plant because again, the probably the inoculum load or the viral load that they were exposed to was not as high and persistent and prolonged like in a meatpacking plant. We talked about the mucous membranes and your three W's. Do we know anything more now about what kind of to pay more attention to like surfaces versus transmission over the air? Like, like is, is sanitizing my hands and washing my hands good enough or, or should I be wearing gloves at the gas pump? You know, I think uh, wearing gloves gives people a false sense of security. So um, they may uh, forget to do hand hygiene and not do it enough or often enough if they wear gloves, and they may be more willing to touch more surfaces. So I, I think it actually uh, gives the opposite effect. It probably increases your risk because you get that false sense of security. So I'd rather not wear gloves when I'm out and about and do frequent hand hygiene. And I think we talked about this before. You want to avoid men. And I'm not talking about men as in the male gender. I'm talking about men as an acronym. Avoid the mouth, eyes, and nose. Uh, 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 when you're out and about, because that's uh, an easy way to transmit the virus uh, to you. So most of us are wearing masks when we're out and about, but uh, if, if we suddenly touch our shopping cart and then our eye feels itchy, we reach to itch our eye, well, you know, we've just transferred the uh, coronavirus that was sitting on our shopping cart handle to our eye which is a mucous membrane. So uh, before doing that action, if we were to do meticulous hand hygiene and then waited a few seconds and then rubbed our eye to relieve that itch, that would be better. Or better yet, just uh, overcome the urge to itch and, and although intense initially, it's, it will pass. Just give, give it a shot, you'll see. The uh, urge to scratch or itch will pass with time. And I've learned to do that quite a bit during this pandemic uh, because the average person likes to touch their face apparently about 20 to 25 times per hour. Uh, and, and I've consciously avoided touching my face. Of course, in the hospital, I'm always wearing a face shield which protects you by making it harder to touch your face. So we had talked about um, a little earlier testing and that tool and kind of gauging what the spread is like in different communities. So um, it's been a few months since this really first blew up. Um, At that time, testing was pretty um, targeted towards individuals that were at risk. And I know now we're testing a lot more people, um, some just so they can come to routine appointments in the hospital. So can we talk a little bit more about how we use testing to gauge where different communities are at with the virus and also how are how supplies? Are things looking good as far as the that kind of thing goes? Testing is a very complex issue, and I'm glad you brought it up. So, for example, in the hospital setting, when we talk about testing, we talk about turnaround time. And as people may have noticed on the news, 
especially in some southern states, people are having to wait seven to 10 days to get their result. Well, the whole point of the test is made useless if you have to wait seven to 10 days to get the result. The, ideally, you want to get the result within 24 or 36 hours so that you can act decisively on the results. So for example, uh, if you test positive, then you know that you need to isolate yourself. If you're a non-essential worker especially, you need to isolate yourself for a period of 10 days from the date of onset of symptoms or the date of the test and uh, some other conditions. You can't have a fever and, you, and your symptoms have to be improving and then you can take yourself out of isolation on that 11th day. But, you know, people can't uh, make those decisions, uh, you know, un unless they get uh, a very good turnaround time. So turnaround time is very important. We also have what's called in-house testing, which has a much more rapid turnaround time. We have one platform that gives us a 45-minute turnaround time. But unfortunately, there's been a national shortage of those kids. We have a second platform that gives a two to three hour turnaround time, which is not as good as the 45 minute turnaround time, but you know it's better than the 24 to 36 hours. So we've been using a combination of tests to uh, use on our patients. So, so testing is a huge deal, but testing is important, especially if we're trying to identify cases and getting them isolated so they don't infect more people. But it's only helpful uh, in the midst of the pandemic if we get rapid turnaround time. For like the South, requiring seven to eight day waiting periods before we get the results, then there's really no point in doing the testing. So it becomes very problematic in that regard. I, would, I, I agree. I think the testing is going to be something very important going into fall with the flu season starting back up and uh, trying to determine is it the flu or the COVID amongst many people. So I think the testing is crucial to us trying to figure that out and keeping people home when they need to be home no matter what. People, you know, people have a lot of power in their hands to turn the tide on this pandemic. We talked about the three W's already. One other thing people have a lot of power with is choosing to get the flu shot as soon as it becomes available. It's going to be more important this season than any other season because we don't want our healthcare system to be overwhelmed by both flu and COVID-19 simultaneously. So if we get a large percentage of the population vaccinated against the flu, and hopefully uh, the powers that be have chosen the right formula for this year's vaccine, if we're able to decrease the impact of flu, it would really help healthcare systems uh, then stay free and open to deal with COVID. Uh, you're absolutely right. As people come in, clinicians are going to have to make the decision on, you know, is this COVID or is this the flu? And we need to be giving them the tools to be able to make that decision. And, and, and that's going to be access to testing and rapid turnaround times so they can do the appropriate thing. One other thing I'll mention about the flu is, of course, the Southern Hemisphere has the opposite seasons that we have. What researchers have now found out is, in the Southern Hemisphere, especially South America, Australia, New Zealand, those areas, they've had very minor flu seasons. And they attribute this to all of the mask wearing, hand hygiene, and social distancing we're doing to 
uh, counteract uh, COVID-19 is also helping decrease flu. Uh, I haven't seen the data on if more people have taken the vaccine than usual, but just those three W's themselves will also help decrease flu transmission. So, uh, you know, th that's a hopeful sign going into fall. Hopefully we have the same thing play out here, but uh, people can really help uh, the healthcare system and their providers and, and society as a whole and themselves, obviously, if they get the flu shot as soon as it becomes available. Well, I really like what you said. Let's let's end this this podcast with some hopeful information, not only with the flu shot vaccine, the, the three W's, but can you talk to us a little bit about what you know about the vaccine coming forward or what you know about um, maybe when it would be available for the COVID-19? I know our, our U.S. government spent billions of dollars to get this going, to get it out, to get it figured out. What do you know about it as of today? Uh, you know, there are about a hundred, and last time I looked, and both the WHO and the New York Times have good web pages on COVID-19 vaccine development. I think the last time I looked, there were 147 potential candidates. Out of the 147 candidates, uh, two of them are in phase three trials. One is the U.S. vaccine made by Moderna in collaboration with Dr. Fauci's group at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is a branch of the NIH. And the second one is out of Oxford, England, um, uh, partnering with a pharmaceutical company. Uh, and I don't remember what that company is, but both of them are in phase three trials, meaning uh, 30,000 human volunteers are in the process of being vaccinated with these agents. And uh, they're trying to look for people who are in high prevalence areas to see uh, what will happen. So in other words, about 15,000 of these people will get the vaccine and 15,000 will get placebo, meaning uh, some sugar water. And then we will uh, watch these people and see uh, what percentage of these two groups end up getting COVID-19. And once that data becomes available, the FDA will be able to analyze it and decide if it is a uh, safe, effective vaccine. We probably will get that first data sometime in the first uh, one or two months of 2021. If we're really optimistic, we might even get it in December of 2020. But once that data is known, uh, then uh, people that are really smart will be analyzing it and deciding uh, how effective it is, and, and then pre presumably giving the yay or nay. And then once the yay or nay is given, then the vaccine can be produced and distributed. So, you know, on average, it takes about 10 to 12 years from inception to distribution for a vaccine but everything is being done at a much faster rate. And what I wanna emphasize is, even though it's being done at a faster rate, the FDA is still sticking to its rigorous standards that it has before approving anything. So they're still having to do this 30,000 person, you know, randomized trial. So good science is still happening. So sometimes I think people hear of this term warp speed and think that, oh my God, they're rushing through this, it's not gonna be safe. It's not that at all. What's warp speed is, 
for example, the Gates Foundation and the US government and the British government and the WHO, all these organizations, uh, they, they are looking at about, uh, in addition to these two, six other potential candidates. And they are simultaneously, even before we know that they're gonna work or be of any benefit, building factories to manufacture them. So as soon as the data is in, the factory and the supplies are already in place to quickly manufacture and distribute them. So that's what's warp speed about it. People are risking huge sums of money on this even before we know that we have a successful product. It's conceivable that six of these eight products may be totally useless and we would have wasted a lot of money gearing up to manufacture it. But that's what needs to be done in a pandemic. And it all goes back to what you originally said. I mean, if we really want to crush this pandemic, it starts with us doing three W's, wearing our masks, washing our hands, and watching our social distancing, you know, keeping six feet apart. And I think that's key, like you said. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Vamiri. We have, I feel so fortunate to, and, and Adam here too, feel fortunate that you took the time today to talk to our podcast listeners. Um, your information is fantastic. It's up to date. And we really appreciate the time you've taken with us today. It was a, it was a pleasure talking to you and everyone uh, in the Mercy One family and elsewhere. Uh, have a great day. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. I loved having Adam next to me today. <laughs> First time for Adam on the podcast. And and we've been trying to get him on here, so glad to have Adam. You finally won. <laughs> um, so, but thanks, podcasters, for listening. We we appreciate you guys listening to us so much. You can listen to all our episodes by finding us on your favorite apps like Apple Podcasts, or maybe you listen to Spotify. There's a good chance you already have those on your phone, so just look for Mercy One in those apps next time you're in there. That's where I listen to mine. And you also know that you can go to any episode and download or watch any of our episodes we've had before today at mercyone.org slash podcast. You can send us your feedback. You know we love your feedback on our, web, on our web page as well. Or you can send us an email at podcast at mercyhealth.com. And so with that, we say goodbye. Thank you for listening. We, we love our listeners. We love feedback. And Adam, you're coming back. Sure. <laughs> and um, you know what? Live your best life.